So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you go and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, of, the, Lord the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, then they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? 
Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth, and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand, so that you can perform the signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Our Heavenly Father, please would you help me to speak your words? Would you help us all to hear your voice? And would you give us a growing confidence in the Lord Jesus and his faithfulness to us? Amen. Well, as I mentioned, please keep your Bibles open at page 60, uh, Exodus uh, chapter 3. And I thought it'd be helpful as we continue this series uh, in Exodus, just to give a little recap of where we've got to so far. The backdrop to the whole of the book of Exodus is the promises that God made to Abraham, the ancestor, the forefather of the Israelite nation back in Genesis chapter 12. There he promised him that his descendants would be so numerous that they would become a whole nation. He promised him a people. And then he promised him their own country, a land of their own. And he promised him that they would live under his blessing and would themselves be a blessing to all nations, a people, a land, a blessing. And then in Exodus chapter 1, we saw that God had fulfilled that promise of making Abraham's descendants into a great people, so numerous that Pharaoh himself couldn't suppress their numbers, hard as he tried. And yet we also saw that they are still slaves in Egypt. 
And then in chapter two, there is one child, one child who survives one of Pharaoh's attempts to suppress the Israelite population. Uh, One child who survives his infanticide. And that child is called Moses, born a Hebrew, but raised an Egyptian in Pharaoh's household. And as he grows older, he chooses in that crucial moment in his life that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he chooses to identify not as an Egyptian, despite all the wealth and resources that would afford him, but as a Hebrew. And he jumps to the defense of a Hebrew who's being beaten by an Egyptian, but in doing so, kills the Egyptian and therefore has to flee for his life, flee from Egypt to a land called Midian, which if we've read Genesis is the very land that God had promised to his people. And so at the end of Exodus chapter two, we have a people without a land and we have Moses in the land, but without a people. And the chapter concludes with the Israelites groaning, crying out to God in their slavery and their suffering. And it says that God heard them and he remembered his promises to Abraham and he had compassion on them. And so it seems that the stage is set for a great rescue to take place. And in chapter three, which we were looking at uh, last week, there's this site where Moses, now 40 years in the land of Midian, a shepherd sees in the distance a bush that is on fire, but not burning up. And it's a strange sight. So he goes to it. And then God speaks to him from this bush and tells him not to come too close because he's too holy, 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 as we sung earlier on. But God speaks to him and tells Moses that he has heard, that he is concerned for his people. And then chapter three, verse 10, that great moment that was right at the beginning of our reading this morning says this, So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so it seems that the great rescue is triggered. But up until this point, no one knew that God was planning this great divine rescue, not even Moses. And even now, the people are back in Egypt suffering terribly under the oppression of Pharaoh and the Egyptians without any idea that God is planning to stage a great rescue. They've had no sign that God has heard them or that he even cares. A couple of months ago, I was clearing up after breakfast in our kitchen and our eldest, William, who's five, came out with one of those questions you just don't expect to hear on the lips of a five-year-old. I heard him behind me say, why is everything in my life falling apart? And I thought, oh my God, goodness, what, where has that come from? What deep inner turmoil has led to this poor five-year-old saying something like that? And I was preparing myself for what's probably going to be a really, what's going to come out of this conversation? I turned around and saw him kneeling on the floor over some broken Lego. And I thought, phew, <laughs> dodged a bullet there. This is probably going to be easier to deal with than I had feared. And sure enough, I helped him put the Lego back together and everything was fine again. But we'll all know that there are times when we become very conscious of the brokenness of life, when things fall apart and they're not so easily fixed. Uh, Sometimes life doesn't go how we had planned or work out how we had hoped. And after the last year, I'm guessing that none of us really needs persuading of that as COVID has upended our lives and has caused a huge amount of suffering 
in this country and around the world and continue still to do so. But of course, it's not just COVID, is it? Once we're all vaccinated, once we get our lives back, all the same problems will still be there that always were. Broken relationships, painful situations that we're living with, memories of those that we've loved and lost. Maybe you feel the brokenness of life in one particular big situation or event in your life, and it has left its scars on you. Just this week was the funeral of a friend of ours who we've been praying for a long time would beat a battle with cancer, but didn't. How was that right or good or fair? Wasn't God listening? Perhaps you feel the brokenness of life through the gradual onset of poor health in older age with little chance of meaningful recovery. And I think of those in our own church family for whom I know that's true. Or maybe you just feel that like life often feels like a joyless trudge from one day to the next to the next. And you just are left thinking, this isn't how it was supposed to be. And for some, the surprise is that it's no easier when we become a Christian. We're faced still with the brokenness of life. And indeed, often it gets worse, not easier, when we become Christians. Perhaps we suffer for identifying as one of God's people in a world that mostly rejects him. We get it in the neck at work or with mates. Family members take a step back from us, or perhaps worse. And we might think, what what is going on here? Why is it all falling apart? And look, whether this is your situation now or not, there will be times in life for all of us when we look to God and we're tempted to think, really? Nothing? Is this just it now? And then we begin to doubt that he has any power or desire to intervene, to fix what has become broken Well, after 400 years in slavery, at the end of Exodus chapter 2, that's the place that the people of Israel are in. And Exodus chapters 3 and 4 give us what we need to hear, to understand, and to know when we're confronted with the brokenness of life. When things are falling apart and God seems not to know or to care. Because what we see in these chapters is the utter devotion of God to his people. In stark contrast to the reluctance of Moses. In chapter 2, Moses came off as an absolute hero. He saw a Hebrew being beaten up by an Egyptian and he jumped to the Hebrew's defense. Then he saw a Hebrew being beaten up by a Hebrew and he jumped to the Hebrew's defense. And then he flees to Midian, and he sees seven Moabite shepherdesses being harassed by some other shepherds, and he sees them all off. He's an absolute hero, this guy. And so when God delivers this command to Moses in chapter 3, verse 10, now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Well, if this was a Hollywood film, we would expect some stirring music at that moment, and Moses to look boldly towards the horizon as he prepares to go and rescue God's people. But Instead, we get something very different indeed from Moses. You see, by chapter 3, 40 years has passed. Moses isn't that young kind of 
keen rescuer type anymore. He's got a life. He's got a wife. He's got a couple of kids. He's settled down. He's comfortable now. And so he does everything he can to try and get out of this bombshell of a command in chapter 3, verse 10. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses, in trying to squirrel his way out of this responsibility, well, he starts with three questions. He says, who am I? Who are you? And what if they don't believe me? First is, who am I? Look at verse 11. This is what he says. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And look, that seems like a perfectly reasonable, even a humble question for him to ask. Moses is lacking confidence because of who he is and his abilities. Who am I? He feels his inadequacy in light of Pharaoh's power, that I should go to Pharaoh? And he feels it because of the scale of the task. And bring the Israelites out of Egypt? That's a huge thing to ask me to do. Now look at this moment. God might well have answered Moses, Moses, you're the ideal person. You were brought up in the Egyptian courts. You're a Hebrew by birth. You spent the last 40 years shepherding a flock of sheep in preparation for shepherding God's people. You've seen the promised land. You're exactly the right person. You're going to nail this, Moses. But that's not what he says because Moses doesn't need greater self-esteem. He needs a greater sense of the presence of God. And so verse 12, he says, I will be with you. Now, is that an answer to Moses' question? Who am I? I will be with you. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) And yet it's exactly what Moses needed to hear. And it's what we need to hear too when we're overwhelmed with life, with our own weakness or inadequacy, when the task seems too great for us. You know what our culture would say, what popular psychology would say when you're feeling weak or inadequate? It would say, you're great. You can do this. You're capable of more than you know. You've got this. You're going to be brilliant. But not God. He says, who are you? I will be with you. And that's all you need. You see, we need to base our identity not on something that we find in ourselves, but on our relationship with God. Not on who we are, but on who we're with. Moses isn't some great hero, as we're going to see continuing to be made clear through the rest of this section. But God's with him. And that's the only qualification he needs. And so he's asked, who am I? Now he asks, who are you? Look at verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And in answer to that, God gives Moses two answers that reveal what he's like. The first is there in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, this statement is deliberately designed to burst our definitions. We normally say, I am something. I am a father. I am hungry. I am 21. Maybe not. I am lonely, whatever it is. We say, I am something. But this definition deliberately circles back on itself. I am who I am because God is not defined by anything outside of himself. The tense is also deliberately ambiguous here. It could just as well be translated, I have always been who I have always been, or I will be who I will be. 
It's literally, I be who I be. And the point is, he's not shaped by others. He can't be forced to do or be anything against his will. He's radically free in that way. My identity, on the other hand, is very much shaped by other people. I'm an Englishman living in the 21st century, and that profoundly shapes my outlook on the world. I'm short-sighted. I'm wearing contact lenses at the moment, but I'm short-sighted. That means I will never be a fighter pilot, as much as I would love to be a fighter pilot. And I'll never be a perfect husband, as much as I might like to be. You see, I'm deeply constrained, but God is completely unconstrained by external factors. He will be who he decides to be, and no one and nothing can stop that. And yet, he is constrained by his own character and promises. And this is why he gives Moses a second name in verse 15. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now, when we in our English Bible see that word translated as the Lord, and Lord is in capitals, that is a translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh. It is God's, God's name for himself, Yahweh. And it's his covenant name, the name that communicates his relationship with his people and the promises that he's made. Just as I am a man called Chris, God is a God called Yahweh. And Yahweh is his covenant name. Uh, my wife here, her, her covenant name is Mrs. Tufnell. That's the name that she got when she married me. It communicates her relationship with me. And now if Rebecca, after the service, started introducing herself to people as Miss Harris, her maiden name, I'd begin to feel rather worried by that. But God does not change his name. Look at verse 15. He says, this is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. He does not change his covenant name because his commitment to his people is unwavering. God is unswervingly committed to his people and his promises. And in that sense, he is constrained by his own character. He can't be, for example, dishonest. Can God do anything? My children have asked me that. Well, actually, no. He can't be unfaithful. He can't do anything contrary to his character. And this is why Moses and the Israelites and we today can have great confidence in God because he is unconstrained by external factors, so he's powerful to save, and yet he is constrained by his character so that we know he will save and keep his promises. So in verse 16, right to the end of chapter 3, God tells Moses to go and tell the elders of Israel back in Egypt that the God of their ancestors has heard their cries and is going to rescue them and bring them back out into the land that he has promised them. He tells him that they'll listen to Moses, but Pharaoh won't listen. And so God is going to have to force him, but he can do that because he's unconstrained by external factors. And because of that um, uh, very thing, God will even make the Egyptians favorably disposed to the Israelites as they're fleeing Egypt, such that they'll give them all their gold and silver. Again, because he can do that. Moses asked God, who are you? And the reply is this, I am who I am. Not defined or constrained by others. He is powerful to save. 
and he's Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who cannot forget or abandon his people. From generation to generation, he will save them. Now, by this point, Moses is increasingly eager to avoid this mission. And so here comes his third question, chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? And in response to that, God gives him signs, speech, and a sidekick. Signs, speech, and a sidekick. First, some extraordinary signs, okay? He says, what's that in your hand? A staff, okay, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground, it becomes a snake, and he runs from it, as he would. And God tells him to pick it up, he picks it up, and it turns back into a staff. Now, that's a pretty cool sign. And then he gives him another. He says, put your hand inside your coat, bring it out. It's leprous. Put it back in, take it out, it's fine again. Now, those are some pretty cool signs. But God says, if they don't believe those two, how about this one? Take a cup, dip it in the Nile, pour the water on the ground, and it'll turn into blood. They should be persuaded by those three signs, Moses. Now, they're not just random party tricks. They connect with what's going to happen in the next few chapters. But for the moment, they serve to give credibility to God's chosen man, his leader. And so he gives them these signs. But then Moses turns to a pretty poor excuse in verse 10. There he says this, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And now why do I say that's a pretty poor excuse? Because all the evidence is that Moses is not a poor speaker. Acts chapter 7 verse 22 says that he was powerful in speech and action. And he has shown no signs before and in the rest of uh, the Bible shows no signs afterwards to be anything but a very gifted speaker indeed. Now what's going on here as one commentator uh, explains it is this is a cultural way of protesting with exaggerated humility and self-deprecation rather than a literal claim of being slow of speech. And as soon as you understand that, there are lots of other examples in the Old Testament of people doing this, trying to kind of bow out of a responsibility by pretending they're really not as equipped as they in fact are. And so God responds nonetheless by assuring him that he will help him speak. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight and makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Oh, yes, I think it is me. Yes. Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And now that Moses has completely run out of excuses, you could see all the avenues out being cut off by God. He really has nowhere else to turn. And so verse 13, he just says, pardon your servant, or please send someone else. Please. And it is kind of funny, but really it's not because verse 14 says the Lord's anger burned against Moses because of his unwillingness to obey. And yet, how gracious is God? How gracious is he that he doesn't just cast him to one side? He says, okay, I I won't send someone else, but I'll give you a sidekick. (laughs) Look at verse 14 again. What about your brother, Aaron the Levi? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you. And he will be glad to see you. And you can imagine Moses at that point thinking, oh, really? He's already on his way. Okay, so you knew I was going to say, okay, he's already, oh, this is really happening. Okay, he's sending Aaron. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Poor old Moses. And Moses, as a younger man, was this one jumping to everyone's rescue. But now he is God's very reluctant rescuer, making excuses left, right, and center. 
He comes off more like the cowardly lion from the Wizard of Oz in these chapters. Who am I? I will be with you. Who are you? I am who I am, the unconstrained, powerful to save God. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, devoted to my people. What if they don't believe me? Here are some signs. I'm not very good at speaking. I'll help you speak. Please, said someone else, here's a sidekick. Moses' questions show he's commitment shy, but God's answers consistently show that he is utterly committed to his people and cannot be anything else. So Moses does very reluctantly begin the journey back to Egypt. Look at verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. And then there's this really weird scene in verses 24 to 26, where they're on the way to Egypt, and Moses, Zipporah's wife, has to perform an emergency circumcision on her son. I mean, that's a really weird scene. And there's a number of things that we don't quite understand from that. I've done some thinking about it this week. Um, I've got more I could say than time to say. But if you want to ask me about it afterwards, then feel free to. But this is what we do know, what really is clear, is that Moses hasn't circumcised his son which was something that God commanded his people to do. It was an outward visible sign of being one of God's people. And so Moses, in not doing so, has been disobedient to God. And that's not okay. He's the holy, holy, holy God. We're seeing that he's the rescuer, who, ruler who rescues for relationship. And the whole of the second half of Exodus is about how God can have a relationship with the disobedient and sinful people. And he, he makes a mechanism for that to happen. How that can happen is, is actually the story of the rest of the Bible, how God can have a relationship with us. But Moses here has, has disrupted, has broken that relationship. Once again, he comes off badly. And it's just more evidence in these uh, chapters that Moses is not some spotless hero. And yet, Moses goes with God's encouragement and with his sidekick brother Aaron, who God sends to meet him in verses 27 and 28. And when they get back to Egypt, it plays out exactly as God said it would. Look at verse 29. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. And so, look, how should we respond to all that we have seen here? Well, a few ways, I think three in particular, and here's the first. There is in these chapters a very stark contrast between Moses and God, Moses and Yahweh. And it's there to show us that in contrast to our fickle, changing, weak human hearts, we should see the utter faithfulness and commitment of our unchanging God from generation to generation, 
And know that however hard life gets and however distant he feels, he will never abandon his people. He can't. He's constrained by his character and his love. And so if you are one of his people, you can be sure of his heart for you. That he's mindful of your struggles and your hurts. And that he cares deeply. And that he has promised to take you to a better country. A heavenly one. Where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And he will take you there. Even if we're like Moses, and we are like Moses, with reluctant, disobedient hearts, look at how he treats Moses. He doesn't cast him to one side as he might quite justly have done. But rather he promised to be with him. He was gracious to him. He gave him everything that he needed. And that's what he's like with us. And so whatever scars you bear, whatever burdens you carry, whatever trials you face, know that even when it doesn't look like it, God is working out his salvation plan and is utterly committed to his people and his promises. He will never let you go. Secondly, know this. That into whatever situations God calls us, his people, to go, he is with us. He is our committed and unchanging, covenant-keeping God. And he will give us all we need for all he calls us to do. And perhaps there's something particular that you know that God is calling you into at the moment and you feel anxious about that. Or perhaps you're conscious of the way that Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 calls all of his disciples to go and make disciples. To, like Moses, go and tell of God's love and lead his people home. But you're scared about that. You think, who am I to do something like that? Who are you? What will I even tell them? What if they don't believe me? Oh, I'm not very good at speaking. I'm not an evangelist. Please send someone else. Don't worry about who you are. Remember who you're with. What did Jesus say? And I am surely with you always to the very end of the age. And thirdly and finally, and perhaps most of all, here's how we should respond to what we've seen this morning. Marvel, marvel at this. That 1,500 years After God said to Moses, I am who I am, came a man who said, before Abraham was born, I am. Marvel that Jesus is Yahweh, living among us in human flesh. He is our covenant-keeping God, so committed to his people that he came in person to us. So committed that he defeated that great evil on the cross when he died for our sin. So committed that he overthrew the last enemy of death itself when he rose from the grave. 
he is our rescuer, our unreluctant, totally committed, utterly obedient rescuer. Obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it says at the end of Exodus chapter 4 in verse 31, when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. And the truth is that for us, we have not only heard, but in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we have seen his commitment to. And so how much more for us should our response be to bow down and worship? Worship this most willing and wonderful rescuer, Jesus. Let that be our response this morning. Now, normally at this moment, I would lead us in a prayer. But instead, I'm going to invite us with this next song to remain seated and to consider the words together and to turn these words into a prayer of response to what it is that we've heard from God's word this morning. And so I'll hand over to Matt and Steffi as we have this song, How Great Is Your Faithfulness.